Welcome to another episode of the Talk About AI podcast, a podcast about AI where we go beyond the buzzwords. The guest of this episode is Nima Gorbani. He's the head of analytics and AI at Swedbank, which is one of the biggest banks in the Nordics. In this episode, Nima tells us about his team of around 30 people, a majority of which have PhDs. He elaborates upon how they recruit and retain top talent in a time where there is war for such talent. We also discuss how Swedbank uses AI and advanced analytics for fighting financial crime and for improving the credit decision process. Furthermore, Nima explains why they prefer MVPs over POCs when it comes to AI and advanced analytics projects. These and many more topics are covered in this very exciting episode. The episode was recorded right before the summer. For more information about the podcast, please visit talkaboutai.com. My name is Patrick Liu Tran, and I'm the host of this podcast. Once again, warm welcome to the Talk About AI podcast. Welcome to the Talk About AI podcast. How are you today? Very good, thank you. Nice to be here. Are you still working from home? Uh, yes, uh, we are uh, encouraged to continue working uh, from home. Yeah, that's good. You're actually the first person I'm meeting for, I think, almost two months physically, besides my family. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> How has it been to work from home? Uh, I know that some people love it and some people absolutely hate it. It's been fine up to now, I would say, but uh, now it's starting to take its toll. Uh, on the nerves um, you know you're longing to get back uh, to meet the colleagues um, uh, to stop doing Skype and team meetings uh, yeah. over the phone and, and digitally so it's um, some sort of a sense of normality would be nice to have in place now yeah I totally agree so could you just tell us a bit about Swedbank for the listeners outside the Nordic countries and the Baltics mm? sure um, so Swedbank actually this year turns 200 years. It's uh, one of the largest retail banks uh, in the Nordics, uh, but also a very strong footprint in the Baltics countries. We are a universal bank in the sense that we provide a very broad set of uh, financial products and services. We were based on the foundation of enabling um, private and corporate customers to build up a sustainable financial situation. Uh, and it goes back to our roots with the savings banks as well. Um, so that's that's where we are, and, and we are somewhere about 15,000 people. Uh, very strong um, digital footprint, of course, uh, but also a large reach with our uh, branch network and uh, our contact centers. Cool. You're actually the first bank that I became a customer of okay. in one of your savings banks in the southern part of Sweden. Yeah, that, that is usually the way I think we um, people associate with Swedbank. I mean, I remember when I got my first, uh, it was a bank check account uh, and, and, you know, a piece of paper and you were very proud. I think I was yeah. like seven years old, something like that. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I'm uh, customers of uh, several banks now, but my main business is still with Swedbank. Mm, now we're glad to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> and... Here at Swedbank, you have the title Head of Analytics and AI. Could you please tell us more about your background and how you ended up in this role? Mm, um, so I actually have my background uh, in, in consultancy, um, focusing on tech consultancy mostly. Um, I've always been a tech evangelist or a tech 
geek, whatever you want to call it. Um, but then focusing on on uh, development careers and how we can leverage and extract business value from new disruptive technology. I think that's been the main theme throughout the years. And 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 um, after my consultancy career, I ended up in in well in in Swedbank and and been involved in basically establishing this capability that uh, we will be talking more about. So you were basically one of the first people working with analytics and AI at Swedbank. Uh, I think we've been doing we've been doing advanced analytics uh, for a long, long time at Swedbank. Uh, I was involved in in trying to consolidate those scattered capabilities into one group function. Uh, that was basically one of the first tasks that I got when I started in Swedbank in 2013 to try to create this consolidated view of of how Anahan take that journey forward. And that's been what I've been doing for the past you know seven years now. Cool. And uh, now we get into some uh, definitions. Uh, we <laughs> mentioned AI, you mentioned advanced analytics. So mm. how would you define AI and how does that differ from advanced analytics? Mm. So advanced analytics for me, it's um, basically the art or, or the function of, of taking smarter decisions. And then to take those smarter decisions, usually you apply data uh, and analysis reach that state. Um, but now lately also there is a lot of new tools and technologies being available to take those smarter decisions. And here is where AI comes in. And AI, for, of course, in a, has a, have a generic, more academic definition. It has a more uh, applied definition, I guess, in, in the sense of Swedbank. Uh, the more academic definition for me would probably be something like computer systems and machines who are able to conduct cognitive functions and tasks quite similar to to the functions and tasks we humans can do without using our brain like interpretations understanding recognizing patterns uh, being creative in a sense so that would be the broad definition of 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 ai for me but but in swedbank i think we've been narrowed down it very very uh, strictly in a sense uh we only talk about the applied part of ai which is uh you know, using machine learning and deep learning capabilities to uh, solve very, very defined piece of tasks. We are quite far from this artificial general intelligence, which is more of a sci-fi kind of things right now, I would say. Yeah, very cool. Another question that I usually ask to kind of get a sense of uh, what you kind of don't put in your definition of AI mm. is what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions when it comes to AI? It's probably that that uh, a lot of people think it it can do anything. Uh, it's not off. It's not seldom that I get a question like, "Well, let's put some AI on it and we can solve it." Um, but but today's general AI field is still very very narrow in the sense that just the, the AI solutions that we develop are can do some very small tasks really really good. Uh, but they don't have the ability to generalize over broad different types of problems. Could you give some concrete examples of the more uh, general versus the more narrow tasks? I think a narrow task would be like applying a piece of AI to understand a piece of text. Yeah, you know, or understanding or you know, categorizing between cats and dogs. <laughs> yeah, um, a broad set of AI probably would be something down the road that that you can um, you know, ask a lot of questions 
different questions or uh, and it would be able to uh, branch off into different topics and extract con- relevant content and answer questions or being able to play very strategic games uh, with multiple options right it's still within the game domain so in a sense it could become kind of narrow but 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 i mean strategic games these days like go and other they require quite a lot of different components yeah uh, and and the learning part of how the ai system can adapt over time and and learn from its mistakes is is the very interesting part of in, in terms of becoming very general cool and um you said that uh, you were one of the first people uh, at swedbank working with advanced analytics at that time to mm. consolidate uh, all the scattered initiatives mm. so when did swedbank start working more with the ai part i think uh, with regards to ai we work on and would be more machine learning and deep learning tasks that would happen somewhere i think in in three years ago Three, three, four years ago, smaller scales, but but really taking off now in the past two and a half, three years. Yeah, uh, it's been accelerating, <laughs> to say the least. And uh, why do you think that happened uh, first now during the t- last two, three years? Uh, it's a combination of multiple factors. I think it's it's the fact that um, it's of course been recognized as a very important. Uh, 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 driving factor for our business. Uh, it's been recognized by the senior management and, and hence also received funding and investments, which is very good. Uh, it shows that that it's a, you know, it's a thing we need to focus on going forward as part of enabling our business. But also the fact that technology is caught up, access to, to data, access to platforms has been more available and more cost efficient, I would say. Uh, and we've been able to attract a lot of, lot of good people Uh, who have helped taken us this journey and accelerate that. Yeah, and I've actually met quite a few people from your organization working mm. with these kind of questions. Mm. Yeah. And uh, one of the teams that I've met is the team working with uh, robotic process automation. Mm. Would you put that as a part of AI? No, I wouldn't necessarily put it as part of AI. We've been working with RPA for a long time, I would say, in Swedbank, both more simpler robotic tasks, but also more complexer ones. Of course, I think RPA can be extended, complemented, augmented with the use of more smarter intelligence. And this is where AI comes in. So I would say it's an AI would be an enabler or an extension of an RPA in a sense. And uh, that's when it becomes the IA, the intelligent automation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've heard that term, yeah. yeah. Probably you can phrase it, yeah. Yeah, cool. And um, in like uh, mid-2018... I think a lot of people within uh, the banking industry, at least here in the Nordic, started to talk quite a lot about an announcement made by Swedbank. Mm. Because uh, I think the CEO at that time uh, went out in the media and said that uh, Swedbank is by the end of the year. So in roughly six months period, uh, Swedbank had the ambition to recruit 500 digital specialists. And that's quite ambitious, right? Mm, Yeah. Most of these digital specialists are probably working with something else than AI and advanced analytics. Mm. But uh, you also often hear that people say that the first step uh, when it comes to AI is digitalization, because when you go digital, you get a lot more data. Mm. How does your work with AI and advanced analytics relate to the digitalization projects within Swedbank? I would say it comes in in two stages or two phases, perhaps you could uh, say. Um, We sometimes come in into uh, processes or trying to tackle business challenges that lack the, the fundamental prerequisites. Um, processes could be very manual, you have no digital footprint. Uh, and there we have the ability to 
help formalize requirements in terms of how this process can be digitalized. Um, and that's something we're starting to doing more and more now as we've expanded our services across the bank. And the other stage would be more that we um, we see that there is a lot of digital footprint available. We can come in and, and sort of apply our, our models and our technology on, on these digitally already enabled processes. Um, but we can help take it the next step. So in that sense, the AI part becomes an, a, the evolutionary next step of the digitalization. Yeah, uh, and and we have both cases in honestly in in, in Swedbank in certain areas maturity is quite low, and where we have to come in and and try to identify where we can digitalize just simple processes, make data available, you know, stop pushing papers and and more. But then then we have very advanced parts where where we see that how AI comes in really lifts up the uh, capability. So you seem to have two very different cases. Mm. Uh, in one case, there isn't so much digital footprint. So mm. you seem to have uh, quite a lot of influence in terms of how it will look like when it becomes digital. Uh, and in the other case, uh, it's already there, right? Mm. Yeah. Uh, and I can imagine that uh, in the first case, you have uh, also then the ability to influence how the data collection will look like to some extent. Definitely. I mean, that's, that's, to be honest, the part where we are most, most interested in, because if we can come in quite early and, and, and articulate you know, how this process potentially can be digitalized, uh, we will also outline the type of data we would like to extract from different steps of the process, for example, how that data should be consolidated, how that data should be transferred into some central repositories, how that data can be feed it back if needed to enable the process and so on. Uh, it's still a very sort of say, early work, I would say. Yep. Um, and we are learning as we go along. Um, but I think uh, working very closely with the those who actually know the processes, the business stakeholders, is very rewarding. Because we also learn a lot around you know, what actually needs to happen um, besides just looking at the data and the model parts, which is typically you know, how you would associate with something like what we will do. And I, I think that's really uh, important that these digitalization projects include competencies from uh, kind of the advanced analytics and AI parts of the organization. Because normally when you go digital, you do not necessarily think about the data situation and how you will would be able to uh, gain value from that later on. Mm. Yeah, no, that certainly there has those we have seen those scenarios as well. And I think it's good that we are starting to recognize the data part as a very important component on the requirements. And not only thinking of data as you know the items you catch, but also thinking about more of an ecosystem thinking. How should the entire architecture look like? So we don't yeah. you know build ourselves into spaghettis. How should we should create some uh, a very holistic view on 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 the situation integration wise with also other platforms uh, so things run smoothly rather than you know going fetching data from different points. Because yeah. that scenario is also available, of course. Yeah, so you can potentially avoid the data silos in the yeah, future. Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. I think that that is one of the not very explicitly stated requirements on us to to you know, if we build something, make sure it's not the next silo. Yeah, and um, I can imagine that's a bit uh, challenging in an organization with a lot of legacy when it comes to data. Um, sure, yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, and, and that is uh, something we continuously work on. Um, we have a lot of good support from our, our um, say data teams uh, who are available and our architects who try to always you know, strive for creating this consolidated view. 
and in these recent strategy reviews, uh, IT strategies and platform strategies that we are involved in and uh, discussions that's going on, we see definitely very positive steps in trying to minimize those footprints, those legacy, and, and then moving forward into, into a more end-to-end integrated platform ecosystem thinking. It is, of course, a, a, a very challenging task for a large organization like us with a massive footprint. <laughs> System-wise, um, but it's good that at least they, those steps are taken. That people recognize the challenge and, and understand that you know if we want to be there and compete in, into the, in this field going forward, we need to con- substantially rethink our, our platforms and, and our, our, our sort of architecture. Yeah, because traditionally, I mean, banks have always been working a lot with data and information, but uh, more from a regulatory perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so do you feel that there is a tension between kind of the more uh, data and advanced analytics uh, perspective on the data and the more regulatory perspective? It might have been so before, but I, I would just say that these days they go very, very um, tightly in hand with each other. Uh, I mean, we... Um, We'll probably talk about this later on, but I mean, looking at some of majority of our use cases and, and the portfolio of services we provide is very much regular, connected to regulatory use cases, which is good because you you know in a situation where where a lot of banks are these days, these pro- questions are very important. And if we can come in and uh, provide our support, we can see some very tangible outcomes, and that's, that's always rewarding for the people that are working with these things. Yeah. And um, I totally agree that uh, a lot of the use cases among the banks is related to the regulatory. But mm. I think one of the main reasons for that is that that's where you have a lot of the data already. Mm. Yeah, uh, you, we have uh, we have worked quite hard now, and, and there's a lot of initiatives going on to try to consolidate that data view. Uh, so you don't have like a silo for regulatory data, and then you have another silo for everything else. Yeah. But I think try to combine that because we also at the end of the day want to have one single view of a customer. We don't want to have you know, a regulatory view of a customer and a sort of a retail view of the customers. We yeah. try to combine that with those two. Cool. And um, g- going back to these 500 digital specialists, did any of them uh, join your team? Um, yes. <laughs> That's a short answer, definitely. I mean, we have seen a massive... We've been very fortunate in terms of uh, recruiting talents to our team, uh, especially during 2018, 2019. Um, we've seen that... Uh, of course, there's a lot of interest in banking and, and um, there's a lot of data in banking uh, and, and the tasks do uh, resonate with people in terms of the value they create. So we've been able to, yeah, getting hold of some really good people, both coming from an academic background, but also from other industries, uh, creating a very, very diverse team, which probably one of the most things I'm proud of in, 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 in the work we do today. Uh, and we've seen that diversity is a major factor in in. In, in enabling us to take on the cases we have. Um, and, and it's not necessarily diversity in terms of, you know, tech stack, but it's a diversity in terms of you know, ethnicity or, or gender-wise, which, which helps the dialogue and the conversations and the collaboration be very fruitful. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that's something, you know, um, I wouldn't have think about, you know, a couple of years back, the importance of it, but, but you know, seeing it arrive live in action, it, it, it's really rewarding. Uh, could you give a clear example of when this diversity has helped you solve a problem in a better way? I think in, in most of the, um, say, use cases or, or business problems we try to solve uh, analytically, um, you know, whether we're trying to um, take on, for example, fighting financial crime. Yeah. Uh, 
a simple, it's a classification exercise, a supervised learning exercise, perhaps uh, anomaly detection. Um, we have people coming in from uh, academic perspective using graphs to take on that challenge. We have people coming from consulting background, uh, understanding the business aspect of how how you know the fraudsters think of that. Uh, we have people who've been in the bank for a very long time who have you know understanding of the data part. Uh, we have the the liaisons of the agile product owners who who you know sits very closely with the business owners and 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 provide their perspective into this and all of these people you know have their own flavors of it and and it just becomes a very nice perfect storm in a sense but in a positive in a positive way I would say yeah so uh, basically what you describe is that uh, these people with different backgrounds bring to the table different parts of the domain knowledge of the problem you're mm. trying to solve yeah uh, definitely and and. Most often, it's not necessarily a technical part, uh, but it's also the business understanding part, the, um, the cultural aspects, the social aspects of things that comes into the creating an end-to-end product that, that delivers value. Yeah, and I think uh, that is uh, sometimes very underestimated in terms of how important kind of the domain knowledge is in these technical tasks. Because, uh, I mean, uh, given a data set, um, uh, which in many cases are given to you mm-hmm. uh, in such a big organization, you can't uh, influence it in the short term uh, very much. Then, um, I mean, how you go about to work with that data affects the outcome a lot, right? And uh, then the domain knowledge and expertise on how to, uh, what to look for in the data and how to handle it can make a big difference. Mm, yeah, definitely. I think the more traditional view on data science or machine learning exercises would be to, you know, give me a bunch of data, I will throw some model on it and it becomes out magic, which is not really the case in reality. Um, yes, we have tremendous amount of data, but usually that can become a challenge in the sense that, you know, not all of that data is necessary and actually adds value to the output of the model. It may actually take it in another direction, dilute the answers in a sense. Um, so here having a very strong involvement from the business in the early stages of discovery uh, in terms of understanding the business challenge, but also the data situation and landscape um, and their experiences in, in that process it becomes very important, Yeah, which helps us narrow down the task substantially. Uh, so it's more about using data in a smart way than just you know using a lot of data. Exactly. As you mentioned, if you uh, put in too much data, you have issues such as curse of dimensionality for the mm. models. Mm. Uh, a lot of data is not always good. It can be challenging for the models to pick up the real patterns among mm. all of the data. So with the domain expertise, uh, you can remove a lot of the irrelevant parts of the data, right? Mm, definitely, and, and also speeds the development process because that's, uh, everything we do is, is connected to some sort of cost and, and, and effort, of course, right? So we want to maximize ROI. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we can just spend, you know, six months just looking at the data. If we can do that in one month or three weeks by sitting down two workshops, that is an amount of gains uh, for the business, of course. Definitely. And uh, uh, talking about your team, uh, how many are you within uh, the AI team, so to say, uh, mm-hmm. or AI and advanced analytics team? Mm-hmm. So the advanced analytics and AI team is is uh, today constituted of some thirty people. Uh, they are um, uh, majority um, working in data science related roles, so machine learning engineering roles. Um, some majority are are um, PhDs 
Uh, not that that is a requirement that has kind of seems to be that that path pe pe people take these days to get into the field. Uh, but we also have um, uh, a lot of good people who, um, as we have, tr as we are sort of working in agile fashion, uh, adopting the agile development practices in the software uh, development. Uh, we have agile park owners, uh, business analysts uh, who we're all working closely together with the data scientists and the machine learning engineers uh, to um, work on, on these common business challenges. So that's the AI team. But of course, the AI team on its own can't do all the work, right? Uh, we are very much dependent and very rely on our very good people on, on our data teams uh, who, uh, who work with uh, you know, enabling the data, the sourcing part, uh, supporting in, in uh, DevOps right, the operations, um, CI, CD operations. Um, so all in all, is a massive amount of people involved in these areas. Um, whereas sometimes, perhaps, you know, the focus tends to be on the AI team because you know that's that's the coolest part. Yeah. Yeah. But so it's, it seems like you have a quite uh, focused uh, AI team, uh, mm. but you work closely with other functions. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we um, when we come to deliver an end-to-end -end analytics product, um, it is uh, by definition a multidisciplinary, cross-functional team uh, involving you know people to uh, support with the sourcing, or getting the data, doing the development, deploying it, operationalizing it, making it insights putting it in the hands of, of either internal customers or external customers. Uh, and in between, of course, you have all the business domain knowledge experts, uh, regulatory uh, experts um, that also can support in terms of, you know, what can you do and what, what, what can you do. Yeah. And um, uh, before we started to record this episode, you mentioned that you had been listening to uh, the episode with Amr Mohammed mm. at uh, Coop. Uh, mm. And... Uh, I remember that he said that uh, each of the data scientists have their own full stacker, uh, so they kind of can do a lot of the end-to-end -end work together within the small team that mm. they have. So that kind of differs a bit from your approach where you have an AI and advanced analytics team and then you collaborate with the other functionalities, right? Rather than having it in the same. Yeah, I think we need to distinguish between organizational setup and sort of delivery model setup. Uh, organization, yes, we have people in, in, it's more of a, if you're familiar with the guild. Uh, so we have a guild where, is where we build the knowledge, the processes, the, uh, the culture around our people. Yeah. Um, but when, when we actually deliver then uh, analytic products, these people are uh, working in different teams. Yeah. Uh, and these teams could be, you know, we can talk about it could be uh, from five to six people to 15 people, or perhaps or 20 people, uh, where you typically have most of those necessary capabilities and knowledges available dedicated to your team to deliver an end to end product. Okay, uh, so it sounds like in practice uh, you kind of have the same approach. Yeah, definitely, I, I would say so. Um, we've seen that, um, we still see that it's very important to, to foster a strong team feeling with, with, with regards to the practices, the, the routines, the culture you build. That's why we have maintained our guilds. I think that becomes even more important when people are scattered all over the world and working remotely. You still need to have a home belonging. Yeah, uh, particularly in very specialized domains like AI or data science, uh, um, you kind of need to find someone like yourself to talk to uh, uh, 
but whereas when it comes to the actual delivery part, then, then of course people are organizing these different teams and they deliver, and that is is becoming more and more of a normal sta- normal standard for us. And um, these PhDs uh, within your team, mm. uh, what's the area of their expertise? It's again, it's very diverse. I think the, one of the first and most uh, first recruitments we had was the guy who came in with a background in in statistics. Uh, and that guy now turned out to be the head of our R&D uh, in our team. Um, but we also have PhDs with you know, bioinformatics, uh, computer science, physics. It's, it's a very diverse set, I would say. We don't explicitly go out and ask for, you know, we want PhD in this area. Uh, and, and more and more, I think it's important to recognize in these times when the war for talent is, is becoming uh, very obvious, is that we, you know, of course, we look out for that you that you tick off the base, basic hygiene in terms of data science uh, capabilities and so on, the tech stack. But more and more, so we focus on on um, the social, the the uh, attitude, the mindset part. I think the mindset part is something we really look for. Um, you know, we invest a lot of time in understanding and in getting the right people. We 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 do see ourselves as a a big family. And then I'm, I'm very keen on, on, you know, making sure the personal chemistry in the team works. <laughs> so getting the right mindset and attitude and then the rest you can pick up. I mean, you don't necessarily need to be expert in neural networks and, and or your transfer learning to be part of our team. They're not, not, but that if you can demonstrate that your ability to learn, that you are a good team player, that you, you know, have the mindset of, of thinking solution oriented rather than problem oriented, then that really takes you um, far in our recruitment process, I would say. And uh, what's your strategy to kind of, uh, you've obviously been quite successful in recruiting these top talents. Mm. How do they find you? Or do you find them? <laughs> <laughs> it's a combination. It's a mix. Um, and, and that strategy has also been different throughout the years. Perhaps in 2018, 2000, well, 2018, I would say primarily, we were you know, having more, using the more traditional approach of recruiting uh, headhunting or traditional, you know, ads out there. Uh, Swedbank brand is brand is brand is rather strong, so, so you know we, we get a lot of hits. Um, but then, and and we we were there in a phase of sort of building up uh, in in our maturity curve. And now that we have come into a sort of a mat- more mature state, is more about cherry picking particular competences or 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 requirements uh, or tech stack. Uh, and there, it, the, the approach of recruiting is a bit different. We work very closely with universities, yeah, uh, with, with um, uh, both master student programs, with PhDs. We have a lot of good work with Castor program. Um, have a, right now, a very talented uh, uh, young lady who is uh, helping, uh, working in a very interesting field of uh, graph and, and real-time uh, transactions. Um, so getting that sort of competence in early into the process, providing uh, um, um, an entry into our world, of course, is a good way to recruit the talent. Um, but also, of course, you know, um, one of the things we've seen is been very successful for us is that we've been very open with, with the work we do, very transparent and in giving back to society and sharing I don't know if you have seen us, but we are very open. We have our own medium publications where we openly, you know, share a lot of our use cases. Yep. We have, um, of course, a plan of, of 
probably like for the first banks or one of the larger corporates in Sweden to open source some of our assets. Uh, and that sort of an activities, of course, gain a lot of attack, um, attraction. Uh, and, and it's not very often when we meet with candidates who approach us, they say, I mean, I actually read about your, I read your Medium publication or the posts you had here or the conference you attended and I was listening to and I thought it was really interesting and this is a kind of use case I want to work with. So and that sort of an outgoing approach uh, instead of like, you know, uh, lately has been very successful. Yeah, I can definitely imagine uh, that. And uh, as you phrased it, mm. the war for talent, mm. uh, using the word war, mm. uh, despite being successful in uh, recruiting quite a lot of good people, do you find it uh, challenging to find good talents? Definitely, absolutely. Both challenging in finding, but also retaining you know, people. If you look at the first part, uh, the attraction, uh, acquiring people, um, good talent is it's um, the competition is increasing massively uh, and also becoming more uh, becoming more available in a sense uh, that you know your smaller startup or uh, any sort of company can pick up a certain open source tools and do some data science right um, and, and you know some people might prefer that sort of a model and, and would like to work that when it comes to, um, and that becomes, you know, so, so if you look at the supply and demand, traditional, you know, finance into this, um, we are not a company, like, we are not like India or, or China where, you know, you output thousands of students in machine learning or data science. Um, but I think the ones we do put out uh, are, are very talented. Uh, and of course, you know, also being have an opportunity to international careers. So, so we are not just only competing with the domestic competitors, but also, you know, we have a lot of good companies like Spotify and uh, who attract people uh, abroad as well. So I think there the war becomes even more intense. And, and, and when it comes to the second part, which is about retaining, um, data scientists or, or people working in this domain, machine learning engineers, uh, they are very curious people by yeah. definition, yeah, uh, they are always um, looking to find the next thing, in a sense, and developing themselves. Um, and and with the so status quo, it's not it could be a problematic uh, situation uh, for for some people, I would say. And we what we want to do is, is is of course trying to keep developing these people, so giving the 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 home that they feel that they can have a long term career. I mean, we really into this. Always use the word marathon, not a under mirror dash. It's, it's in, we're in the long long term, and we want to make this a place where we can offer these uh, opportunities to continue to grow and develop or develop yourself. Uh, so in that sense, um, reducing the attrition rates or, and keeping people with us. But uh, as the opportunities are, are massively scaling up in other industries, and there is always some new thing coming up around the corner. Whether it's technology or a new cloud provider or a new data set or or even you know a startup scene that is massively growing here in Sweden as well, of course that becomes problematic uh, for us to retain those those talents and and in that sense we have I mean one of our one of probably one of our best uh, recruitments ever I mean we are when we came to a stage where we when people leave us yeah we rather see that they go to these you know one of these guys went to to Amazon and we were super proud. 
I mean, if you want to leave Swedbank, then you go to some place where it's like a holy grail of data science. Yeah. And and that's, I mean, all of us were really glad for him. Basically, I mean, of course, we were deep time sad that he's leaving, right? He's a great, play, great player. He's a, you know, um, social animal, very talented data scientist. But he went into, you know, work for Amazon. I mean, hey, I would go to work for Amazon <laughs> if they ask me. Um, so, so when people take that sort of a transition, we just encourage it. I mean, we say, hey, take the opportunity. Maybe you come back if you liked it so much, come back. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it's a, di- it's a difficult situation and we need to kind of take it from case to case, but find the long-term strategy that, that works for us. And in this case, it's more about, you know, making sure that people keep continuing developing um, and, and providing a, a, a comfortable, sustainable working environment, uh, combining also the work-life balance and those social aspects. I think that sounds like a very good mindset for a data science team. <laughs> By the way, yesterday I heard a quite funny story about Amazon mm-hmm. when it comes to AI. Okay. Um, I, I talked to someone who met Jeff Bezos uh, mm-hmm. and uh, his former wife uh, when Amazon just had 20 employees. So they were rather small back then. Mm-hmm. B- based on what I heard, a lot of people were kind of uh, confused when Amazon started to sell other things than just books, for example, tools, screwdrivers, and so on. Some people thought that they had lost it. Uh, mm-hmm. But later on, it turned out that uh, the reason for why they were selling books was to collect information about what you're interested in. So they early on had this kind of data strategy to if you bought the books about uh, fixing things at home, then they started to promote uh, tools uh, for fixing your home. Mm. Oh, Amazon is a classic example of recommendations. Of some, some what you describe is, is just uh, you know, early examples of that one, using you know, collaborative filtering and those kind of things to... to to enable, uh, you know, extract in, uh, the intention of a customers and, and match it into their products and services. So it's, I mean, yeah, in that sense, it's been very successful, I would say. Yeah, but I was a bit surprised, uh, at least that they were on top of things already from the start. Yeah, I, and I would say that is the biggest difference when you look at a digital native company <laughs> compared to someone like us or other, you know, traditional large banks for that matter. Is that when you have the you know you haven't lived that long, and and you're born in a in the time of data and internet, so you have very early on when you start in your your architecture of your business models and architecture, you start in thinking about that. How can you extract value? So how can I extract value from data? Because you understand that data is the you know old cliche data is a new oil or whatever electricity or whatever you want to use. But but then also making sure that you build something that is integrated end to end, so data beca- doesn't become some sort of an isolated island here and something that you you know, quarter to three at night comes up. Oh, by the way, maybe we should do something with the data. It's something inherently into your DNA, uh, and probably I would uh, assume for those companies it's something where you start your business model around. How do I leverage the data? Yeah. So if you have that sort of mindset. I mean, honestly, we don't have that. It's traditional companies don't necessarily have that sort of mindset, uh, right? But these newcomers, I'm sorry, it's not a newcomer now, but I mean, these tech giants now, you know, for a while now, I mean, they have had that, and but they just just keep pushing it now. First, it was a data, and then it becomes a mobile, and now it's AI first. Yeah, it's always having a very clear target and what what sort of say is the focus, and then they build their entire business model around that focus. And they are not afraid of investing and, you know, 
um, into sort of reinventing themselves of making the business model or the processes to adopt this new focus. I think, and yeah. that's, of course, very rewarding and it's very admirable if you have that sustainability in your organization that can do go through these changes. Yeah, definitely. And going back to uh, Swedbank, um, mm-hmm. in terms of concrete business problems, could you share with us a few problems that you solve with the help of AI or advanced analytics? Mm, yeah, I mean, uh, definitely. I think there's a lot of good things we can uh, share with the audience here. Um, let's let me take it like this. I mean, our our we came from a retail background, so we started our use cases from a retail, and in retail, it was it was quite a lot focused on how do we drive sales, how do we improve satisfaction, how do we uh, become more relevant and personalized in our offerings towards the customers. How do how do we basically? I, li- I always like to say, how do we know what the customer wants? before the customer actually knows it itself. Yeah. Um, and again, companies like Amazon are really good at that. Uh, there are some, of course, some horrific examples of, you know, people already know that your the daughter was pregnant before the father find out and that sort of example. We don't want to go that way, of course, but, <laughs> but uh, it's more about understanding customer intent. And that's something important in the retail. Understanding customer intent so we can personalize our offers, uh, so we can be relevant in terms of time and proactive um, along the customer journey. Uh, so there is a lot of sort of AI solutions or machine learning development maybe done in that area, basically uh, targeting, finding the right customers to target a particular product or services. Um, and then we've seen some tremendous uptakes in, in you know, increasing conversion rates and click-through rates when those models have been deployed. Then we expanded our portfolio of services into looking, you know, um, like automation. Automation and efficiency. And this is a major area. And it also ties into the RPA discussions we had before. It's more about that banks, there's a lot of rule-based systems in banks. Yeah, for uh, compliance reasons. Yeah, uh, you can explain those. Uh, but when, when rules become the, you know, when we have massive amount of rules... Then the dependency between the each rule becomes complex. You, st- you start to lose the overall picture. Also, it's very difficult to maintain over time and requires a lot of manual effort. So here there is also another opportunity for us to go in and the use cases work on and try to see how we can sort of replace these rule-based systems with automated machine learning capabilities. And it could be, for example, in, in credit processes, uh, like a complement and augmentation of an existing process, not replacing the credit decisioning process, but more enhancing it or augmenting it, whether it's a corporate uh, or, or, or private. Um, so that's another area. Um, but then also, I think the biggest area right now, because of where Swedbank Bank is, and, and other banks are, of course, is the focus on fighting financial crime and anti-money laundry, is, of course, um, applying data science into sol- solving, finding the bad guys. Yeah. Finding fraud activities, uh, finding anomalies. Which is, if you think about it, essentially is a mathematical problem of classification. Uh, and finding those anomalies is something that these AI solutions are really excelling at. And, I mean, one of the biggest deliveries we had uh, towards the end of last year was, was one of these AI solutions that was used for any anti, to uh, part of our anti-money uh, laundry solutions. Uh, of course, complemented with an end-to-end systems, working with the investigators and, and um, aiding that process. And, and that sort of a solution when it's integrated is always like beautiful to look at yeah. because the model part is a very small part, 
but when you put it in the context of you know real-time data coming in, output goes into a lot of customers, or potentially into a lot of um, internal customers, going into uh, ad advisors, and, and that, that becomes a beautiful thing to look at. The architecture is super complex, but, but I mean, when you actually make it work, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's a love story in a sense. Yeah, I can imagine. And um, I mean, I mentioned um, in the beginning that Swedbank was my first bank, mm. but I'm also a customer in several banks now. Mm. We we're going to try to get you back, of course, you know. <laughs> but, but I'm still there. Uh, <laughs> I, I just, I, I'm actually a customer of all four major Swedish banks. Okay. And one of the niche banks. <laughs> I mean, I'm a typical customer who might be quite problematic from a data perspective, right? Because uh, you just get some parts of my financial engagements. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And uh, um, for example, when you deal with uh, financial crime, that's also the case, right? Uh, people are probably using several banks to commit their crimes. Mm. How do you go about uh, solving that kind of data issues that you just get a small part mm. of the image is it still possible to uh, see clear patterns for the use cases we've worked on and and considering we have a very large customer base we feel that we have a, a pretty good view of at least their interactions with us and we can find the patterns there so we haven't experienced that problem while however i definitely recognize it i think it's a Something where it requires more of a bank common, you know, framework and and collaboration. Uh, and this discussion has been initiated uh, between the larger banks to how to find ways to, um, you know, share knowledge and experience um, around these topics. I don't know how far we come in terms of actually sharing data. Uh, I think there are some regulatory aspects to be solved there. Yeah, uh, definitely. But but um, it is a social tool problem in a sense. So so and, and a lot of innocent people are impacted so if we can work together from a data perspective uh, to solve this of course i think gain both society and the individuals and the banks as well um but but fortunately so far the models we've built and deployed we felt that you know we have extensive have very extensive access to historic data uh, and those have turned out to be very good indicators I've also heard about this uh, initiative uh, among banks to at least discuss the potential to share data for fighting financial crime and so mm. on. And I think that's a very beautiful thing that, uh, you know, normally your competitors and of course you probably don't want to share data about customer behavior in, in the areas that can help you predict uh, potential upsells and so on. Mm. But when it comes to fighting crime, then I see a whole other kind of mindset in terms of collaboration. Mm. Oh, that's, that's, that's true. I think that's, that will be become even more important going forward. And from that regard, also technology, uh, there's a lot of interesting technology development happening in machine learning and deep learning area. Um, things like federated learning and, and happens that it can aid in and preserving the customer privacy in a sense, but still allow, uh, allowed banks to share, you know, data in a sense and knowledge around the customers with each other for to fighting these kind of things. And then these are things we started looking into. It's still very early on, and it's an experimental state, but uh, it will become more complex as becomes as we have very simple. You basically can switch banks by one button click. So you know, you have four banks. You said you know. Uh, and you five. can have you have five, yeah. 
So, so uh, and then you can have different ones, of course, very easily now. So the patterns of customers' movements, and of course, you become more international or global. You can have banks overseas, and you know, then that becomes even more complex set of problems. And I think that's also another interesting area for us because then that turns out to you know graph analytics, which is a favorite topic of mine. We can talk about that later, but also becomes a very diverse set of networks of, of transactions that that I think is important to. We are operating in one small part of it. And how do we make sure we understand the bigger picture? Yeah. These are the things, challenges we need to tackle going forward. And you mentioned one use case in terms of credit decisions. And you said uh, to augment the humans in that process. Mm -hmm. Could you elaborate more upon that? Because this kind of automated uh, credit decisions, that's one of the most uh, typical use case when it comes to the financial industry that you can read about in the academic literature, at least, mm -hmm. when it comes to ethics and so on. Mm -hmm. But then when you go out in practice, you don't really see these automated credit decisions based on AI as much. Mm -hmm. And there are reasons for that. We can elaborate on that. But uh, in our case, it's, again, we will develop solutions that, can take these automatic decisions, but we're not using it in that sense. Uh, we still believe that the um, human interaction and the human knowledge, the business domain again, is very important. It's more about that we want to make sure that we use these human, scarce human resources and, and in a time efficient way. So if you say you're looking at a set of corporate loans, uh, financing needs that you are supposed to um, um, approve or decline, uh, there are cases which are very, you know, straightforward. There are cases which might be a little bit challenging. And there are also cases which really require a lot of investigations. It would probably be much, much more to let the human look into the red classes, you know, using that knowledge in the best way. Uh, and then the machine take perhaps uh, support take on the, you know, green and green and yellow cases. Yeah. And I think that's how we would like to use these, these credit solutions aiding in that process and that's how we've been sort of working in on a, on a corporate setting it's always considered to be a combination um, into our processes to augment the humans and make the processes running faster and more smoother um, basically uh, letting the people focus on the most important part so a very cool example of the um, kind of collaboration between humans and machines the machine is uh, filtering out uh, and categorizing uh, the cases based mm. on uh, kind of the need for human intervention. Mm. Yeah, you can have that. And I mean, there is um, there's multiple applications. And I'm coming back to the, you know, why not used as often is because it goes to things like explainability, some regulatory requirements that, you know, I don't want to be the customer who comes in and, you know, I need of some sort of financing and, you know, I get declined. And, and, <laughs> and the advisor tells me it's because the machine told me, you know, you decline. That's not a good answer. Uh, that's not even an okay answer. We need to be transparent with our customers uh, and open around how we take decisions. And the, the, the risk we take, the, the, the implications it has and so on. And if you really want to go you know, the dark, the left side of this, you can apply very advanced black box models. We'll probably have a very high accuracy in, in credit decisioning. But then you definitely lose the part of being able to explain to the customer why certain decisions was taken which is important not only for the customer, but also from a regulatory perspective, which we, it's an important component because those regulatory frameworks protect the customer. Yeah. Uh, so that's, I think that's why the school books examples of credit decisioning are not, or say, really flying all the way end to end on their own in, in real life practice. 
I mean, th that's uh, the common argument that you hear, the explainability part, because mm. the credit decisions uh, for most banks are one of the core decisions, right? Mm. And not only the customers, but also you in the bank want to understand why you grant someone a loan or not, right? Mm. To be able to question if uh, the algorithm is reasonable or not. To have it entirely automated when you can't really understand the decision making, th that's maybe a no-go zone for many banks. Mm. But, but um, w when you have it, as in your case, as a first step to filter out different cases, what's your take on the requirement for explainability there? Because you still have a human in the loop in the second mm. stage. Well, we've chosen a path where we think it's still very important to be able to explain. And then I think it's more about the, the culture and the type of bank we are. We want to be transparent and open. I would assume, you know, other companies would probably take another path because you're not, as you say, it's, it's not as necessary to be very explainable in that sense in the first stages. Although, you know, we always think, try to think end to end when we build the models. You know, at some point in time, maybe the model should be, you know, taking over a, a larger steps of this process. And there you still need to be more explainable. So why not try to build explainability already in there from the beginning? It's going to be difficult to come in afterwards and say, oh, let's try to explain these black box models. Uh, yeah. that, that becomes, uh, you know, probably it's better to... Is this term of explainability by design? A little bit like security by design, but here is more about how building things that are by definition from the beginning then are, are built in this way that they can exp be explainable. Uh, just to be clear, uh, the kind of very green cases, uh, the obvious cases where the loan should be granted, mm. uh, that is not entirely automated either, right? You still have a human in the loop. Uh, we still have, uh, that depends on what type of loans, of course, we talk about. And if it's a corporate, smaller corporate, larger corporate, if it's a private person, what sort of, an, depending on the size of the loan and so on. So I think there are, there are some thresholds uh, depending on the size of the loan and, and so on that, that some of these decisions can go all the way. Uh, and some of the decisions still has some sort of an four I principles or two I principles approach to it. Okay. Um, and, and of course, it also has to do with the, overall risk appetite of the organization. And, and, and because from a model perspective, it's a threshold. Yeah. You know, where do you lie the threshold? Do you want to write at 75% or 85% or 95%? Uh, and because if you put it on 75%, then, you know, you probably take a larger risk. If you put it on 95%, then, you know, it's very few get through and that might impact customer satisfaction. That might impact your competitiveness in the market. So it's a, you know, the modeling part and building that and enabling so technically the, the automation um, and the credit decisioning, that can be done, but there is more often than so other aspects that plays in into that calculation. Yeah, and uh, these thresholds that you talk about, are these set up by humans entirely? Uh, definitely. Uh, I mean, and, and in very close dialogue and validation and tests with the business owners and the stakeholders and the experts. Um, mathematically for us, I mean, it <laughs> doesn't really make a difference if it's 75, 85 or 95, we can draw the line. But we might not always know the consequences. So that's why we work very, very closely with, you know, our risk organization, our credit organizations, our business stakeholders, both in terms of understanding what's the appetite, you know, what would be the consequences if I put the threshold of 75 versus 85 in terms of, you know, a potential workload, potential questions you will get to your contact center, potential 
paperwork that would require afterwards, regulatory. So it's much more of a complex uh, things, and very you know really in the hands of our experts. Uh, it's, it's nothing we just you know said. Yeah, and that sounds very reasonable. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's a, it's a, it's a beer bank, so <laughs> still yeah. Too, yeah. And related to the explainability of the model, you said that you have this long-term view. So even though you currently have a human in the loop uh, to ultimately make the decisions, you still have decided to have explainable models uh, to do the filtering of the uh, credit mm. cases based on difficulty levels. And um, one uh, common debate within the domain of explainability of models is that there is kind of a trade-off between uh, performance of the model and explainability of the model. And uh, to summarize uh, kind of this debate, I think it's fair to say that the argumentation goes, um, if you have a more complex model, then it can uh, more accurately model the complex reality and therefore the performance of the model can be very high. Uh, but uh, of course, this complexity makes the model less understandable for a human, right? So you have this performance explainability trade-off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true, and, and we've seen that, and we work with this quite a lot. I would say, um, as a rule of thumb, of course, when we get into things like credit decisioning or or other any other sort of regulatory models where the general requirements for explainability is more um, defined, um, we definitely we really make sure to use very simple explainable models. I think there are still, as as you um, um, you know. There are techniques like Lime and Sharp value usage to be able to explain uh, even more complexer models. There are even you know research being done into being able to explain neural networks. You know, back sort of uh, from a more of an outcome perspective, and you do some sort of an reverse engineering thinking to explain it. Um, but the question is essentially is about how do we feel comfortable about the output we have? Yeah. Uh, and of course, you can have a lot of, you can have black box models which have very high accuracy, but also you need to think about, it's not just about explainability, it's also about an enormous amount of work that goes into developing these very complex models. So you need to be able to explain those, fine, it's going to be difficult, but also, you know, a lot of things can go, when you don't really know what happens, your ability to control it and, and you know, feature engineer or even, you know, control the the ingoing and outgoing parameters becomes very limited. So in that sense, it's not really usable. It has, of course, a lot of academic value <laughs> and it's cool and you can work with it. And so, you know, we do a lot of research and POC-related work into this into this area. But uh, um, I would say, say in, in our cases, it has been fairly s simple to come to decisions that whether we should use this complex model or this simpler one, which is more explainable. Again, is a trade-off of in terms of not only the explainability but also the effort that goes into creating very complex models just to get you know an additional one percentage better improved accuracy or precision or recall or whatever we want to use. Is it worth it? Yeah, that's a very fair question, mm -hmm. and um, I think uh, most of the banks, at least here in the Nordics, have taken the approach that you have to rather use the more explainable models instead of the black boxes and mm -hmm. then try to understand what happened. And in terms of these uh, different business cases that you just mentioned, how do you kind of evaluate the success of these uh, projects? 
Mm, um, it varies, of course, depending on the, the challenge we try to solve, use cases. Um, when it comes to retail type of models, I think that's fairly straightforward. Uh, it's more about, you know, have you increased conversions or click-through rates, that sort of things, marketing, sales-related KPIs. Uh, the trying to ex, uh, isolate the model's impact on um, basically bottom line sales. Do you do that uh, through A-B testing and so on? Yeah, we do a lot of control groups and A-B testings. Um, um, so that's that is one one way of a set of KPIs we can follow and set out and, and define. And, and and those KPIs and also things that are. Um, quite early on in the process of developing models being discussed with the business, how do we measure the success or, or the failure of this model um, from a business perspective? Of course, we, from a modeling perspective, we always look at you know, the traditional matrices, on the curves or, or precision or recall or accuracy, or whatever that is. So those are more standards, but it has to be put in the context of a business and then there's things like conversions or sales that just comes in. Do you so also look at uh, things such as return on investment? We could do that from cases to cases. Uh, it, it comes to the point of, of who owns the value realization. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's not necessarily always us who owns the value realization. So, so it's, uh, let me put that in a way you can uh, make example. So if we have a particular model that, say, enables if operational efficiencies in terms of um, times, so we can say we free up time. Yeah. Uh, how do we, I mean, it's, we are not in a position to, you know, go say, okay, this is how you should use now this free time, but it's up to the business how they will realize this free time's value. Yeah. Uh, so, so in that case, it becomes a little bit complexer, uh, but we are definitely involved in the process and, and we have a dialogue around this, but ultimately it has to be on to business that realize the ROI of it. Uh, but of course, we when when there are strong ROIs, we make sure that we you know capture that and use that because it's it's a very nice selling point. Yeah. Um, and when it comes to more, again, classification exercises, anomaly detections, that's fairly simple in our case because it's usually about reducing false positives. Yeah. Um, in our case, and and there you you know, machine learning available metrics are really good in in you know showing you know. From this set of you know confusion matrix, this is the number of false positives reduced. Why is it important to focus on the false positives? Oh, in our case, it's because um, for each of the cases that you have, um, you are obliged to, uh, and we want, of course, to try to solve all of these cases. I mean, if there are alerts of fraudless activities, um, we will allocate time and resource into solve those. Yeah, and if we have a large number of false positive, of course, that would you know consume a lot of resources, resources that would be probably better used in some other areas. So that's why we want to make sure that you know the output is very, very accurate. So the time our investigators spend on these looking these use cases, these cases alerts or whatever, uh, are the ones that are actually matters. So the false positives in this case would be that you identify someone as uh, being fraudulent and they turn out not to be. Yeah, or, or a transaction. Yeah, uh, or yeah. a transaction. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, on the other hand, we have false negatives, right? Where mm. fraudulent transactions are mm. not identified. Have you found any kind of trade-offs between, you know, uh, if you reduce false positives, you might increase false negatives? Yeah, that's a 
traditional uh, precision and recall uh, challenge yeah. in a sense. Yeah. Uh, uh, yes, but then it goes back to the business problem. Uh, so what is it that is most important for the business in a sense and, and for the operations? Is it to you know, really make sure that we... Um, so is it to make sure that we find the bad guys, all of them, or make sure that we broaden the, the net and we capture a little bit more bad potential bad guys? So it's... Uh, it's it's very difficult to say it's it's going to be you know always false positive or false negatives. It's been a focus for now, but it might change uh, depending because of the sort of say if you have been over cautious in a sense and you have gained a lot of you know a lot a lot of uh, alerts, then of course that is is burdening the organization. And on the other hand, you can be very um, loose. Uh, and let's through a lot of which is not always which is not 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 good at all of course uh, and has regulatory implications so it's just a balance uh, and and again also depends on the risk appetite of the organization we want to have we have zero tolerance in a sense yeah because it has a such an impact on our business and our customers so we want to catch all the bad guys yeah but also uh, but we also also need to put in the context of you know how do we do it efficiently uh, scalable and in a way that doesn't sort of say impact the customer's experience uh, I think that becomes even more important if you think about things like card fraud if you want to build a real-time model detecting a potential transaction a card transaction that is fraudulent and that model you know takes like a minute that's a very lousy user experience right because yeah. you stand in a shop somewhere and <laughs> you know oh, well, why is not my purchase going through well because it's still being processed or if you are for example you know in abroad and you do a purchase and the models automatically detect that you're abroad and that's why you're you know fraudless and it's like no I'm actually in, in France you know on vacation yeah <laughs> and we've seen those scenarios so I think it's um, it's about being very cautious around how you proceed as a very structured approach together with the business and defining what are the success criteria and the performance metrics you want to measure? Going back to their strategy and, and their um, the current focus and, of course, risk appetite. Yeah, cool. And um, you have a relatively big team with uh, uh, data scientists, but it's a very big organization as well. And I, I can imagine you have infinite amount of things to do. Yes, so how do you go about to kind of identify and uh, specify the next uh, thing to work on? Mm -hmm. Fortunately, we have a very, very rigid process of prioritization. <laughs> Sometimes too rigid, I would probably say. Um, but I think it's good because we, we need to be having our, our focus on the business problem. You know, someone like me who is like super interested in this field, I, I can branch off into some area because it's really academically interesting or, or so but I mean it's, it's important to be realistic and have your foot, foot on the ground in terms of what cases you take on practically for us um, we identify use cases by having a very close dialogue with our business counterparties our agile product owners or our champions out in the organization in identifying both proactively I mean this is an area where we can apply data science or machine learning or AI into it to, to solve the particular business challenge but also, you know, we make sure that we are somewhat integrated, embedded into our business teams. Uh, we even kind of, you know, practically attend and sit in their management meetings or in a day-to-day work to make sure that we capture 
uh, understand their business and then have a dialogue in terms of understanding can this problem potentially be scoped into an analytical use case. So that's how we get in sort of the inflow. Uh, we of course have more of an sort of have a bit of an R and D operations to the side where we ourselves try to be creative. With all uh, of the PhDs. With all the PhDs, you know, and that usually uh, fairly simple because I mean, a lot of people have a lot of bright, bright ideas. Um, but again, it's a balance. Um, certain times you have a lot of focus on business delivery. Certain times you can allow yourself a little bit more of an you know, academic take on things. So that's how we get the cases in, uh, both proactively, but also sort of, sort of internal business development activities. And then when we have these use cases, uh, there are you know a bunch of frameworks that <laughs> um, to bore the audience here around how you know you look at the feasibility, you have to you look at the tech reviews, you look at things like you know business value, weighted shorted job first thinking, you know what is most feasible to do in the shortest amount of time, and and all of these kinds of metrics come together to provide some sort of a ranking. Yeah. Uh, and then at the end of the day, of course, there will be use cases which fall outside of this ranking and are not prioritized for this sprint. They will be pushed into next sprint, perhaps, or or next backlog planning exercise. So that's how how it goes. Uh, it's um, you know, it's uh, it's not always easy because it's quite often you need to kill a lot of darlings. Yeah. Uh, and and um, of course, it also fluctuates with regards to what sort of a state the business is in. Yeah. And who are involved in this process of kind of uh, assessing the projects based on all of these metrics that mm. you mentioned? It's in a different type of competences. Um, we, of course, have our data and platforms guys and DevOps people in when we are trying to think end-to-end -end from an integration perspective. Of course, maybe you can build the model. Yeah, sure, great. But we will never be able to put it in practice in operations because it's too complex or we can't support the less than three seconds requirements or something like that so th so then so we have in that regard platforms and data guys uh, and devops people into assessing that architects to say can we do this end-to-end -end, you know all our systems talking to each other we also have a lot of business business people of course involved in into articulating the business value why is this use case important more than the other one and, and then you come into things like we talked before like the performances the metrics as you use i mean we will drive sales in X and we will increase efficiency by Y in here, which one is more valuable. Um, and then of course our guys in, our girls and girls we have our sort of say, data scientists are there, machine learning engineers are there, analysts are there um, uh, to make sure that okay yeah we can do this mathematically probably solve this, oh no we can't do this because it's not enough data, we don't have it's not a supervisor, we don't have as data set that is sort of say, suitable for this supervised exercise. Um, whereas, and also regulatory aspects, of course, because we might want to do a lot of things, but it's not regulatory compliant. And then we also need to have those important aspects into this. Yeah, and uh, given all of these uh, kind of uh, people with different backgrounds and also different agendas. Do you face a lot of kind of politics about the prioritizations? Yeah, I want to be open about it. Yeah, we do. I mean, it's it's a large organization. There are, of course, different agendas. Um, having very rigid processes uh, helps helps in that sense that, that you know, reduce the politics uh, out of the equation. But then, of course, there will be circumstances 
or that sort of things plays in. Uh, we try to reduce that, and that, that is often my job <laughs> that comes into this. Perhaps not the most fun part of a job, but that goes with the territory. Yeah. I think that's uh, one of the most common thing I hear from uh, data scientists that become uh, senior and get to attend these meetings. Mm. Like, why is there so much politics? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, do you have meetings in steering groups and so on? Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's, uh, that's uh, you know, it, we generally try to, at least within the AI organization, we try to have a very flat organization very decentralized in terms of decision-making and, and very open. We Within our organization, of course, we try to reduce the numbers of steering groups and reference groups and all of that uh, because we want people essentially to focus on the job. Uh, and whereas the managers and the team leads are more involved into those dialogues. They uh, just send you there. Yeah, it's just send me there, basically. <laughs> um, um, but I think we, as we, the entire bank has sort of adopted the Agile way of working, um, we have also taken an overall, we're making an overhaul of all of these different forums uh, to really see the need of it and also making sure that the decision-making process is as smooth as possible. But it's still a, it's a journey and, and you know, there are still steering groups to attend, yeah. Yeah, but even, you know, uh, these... Uh, uh, tech companies, we have uh, quite a few of them mm. here in Stockholm mm. that, uh, I mean, in a lot of them, you would imagine that they aren't as big banks with a lot of steering groups and so on, but uh, inevitably when you grow, steering groups and so on just appear. <laughs> yeah, I guess it comes with the territory. Yeah. And uh, related to the current COVID-19 situation, I'm sure mm. that a lot of the listeners are like, no, don't talk about COVID-19. <laughs> it, it's, it's not about COVID-19 per se, but uh, a bit related still. Mm. One of the fundamental assumptions within a big part of machine learning is that, you know, the new data, the production data, if you want, that you put into your machine learning models for predictions, mm. uh, this new data is kind of representative uh, of the historical data that you trained uh, your models on, right? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, uh, you know, the predictions based on historical patterns is not relevant for the new data. But in reality, things changes, right? Reality changes, uh, which affects the data. So data changes. And especially in uh, extreme situations, such as a financial crisis or a pandemic, uh, you see big changes in data. And I saw on LinkedIn someone posting uh, a quite interesting uh, blog post about the amounts of machine learning models that now become invalid. They are trained on data, on uh, human behavior in normal situations, and now nothing is normal. Uh, have you experienced problems with that? Uh, not with the um, models that are running in productions um, right now. We have actually, we did quite recently a work into looking to some of the, um, to a, a subset of our portfolio in, in our portfolio of models. Um, but we have all discovered certain models to be put in production that has sort of been trained and ready to be put in production that have, that have had, we've seen some drifts, data drifts, we call it. Um, and um, those models are typically built on some very real-time very short-sighted type of data, in a sense. Data that typically maybe looks a week from now on or a month from now on, not that longer. Typically, those kind of models that are built on that sort of a data are more uh, receptive of these, these changes, as you mentioned. Um, whereas models would typically look at, you know, year-long behaviors might consider this an anomaly and will disregard it. And if you look at, for example, 
transaction type of data or, or um, web-related data, uh, then um, that is probably you know something that you did last week or something that a group of customers did last last month or even so, and then you build your model around that sort of a time horizon. Whereas if you look at the company's overall financial situation, which is a sum of year-long activities, incoming and outgoing money, um, that has much longer horizons. So if you look at you know loans and typically or or even mortgages, which are typically expanded across numbers of years, and those these kind of dips <laughs> or peaks in a sense uh, have uh, might have much smaller impact on those kind of models and that sort of a data set. Um, so that that and that work we've actually conducted quite recently. We, we went through a couple of models, both more retail related models, looking at you know. Things like propensities and probability to buy something, and those were some of them were impacted, yeah, and uh, some of them were were not. Or more long term models were sort of still stable, which is which is good because then we made our homework right and built something that is more robust um, for that particular purpose. Uh, and then when we uncover these, of course, then there is a work of seeing: do we need to immediately retrain these models, or or we can just you know temporarily pause them? Yeah. Um, I imagine it's not always possible to immediately retrain because uh, kind of the new reality, uh, you have very little data of that uh, sometimes. Yeah, uh, I mean, it, you know, if you want to train them on pandemic, you probably need to go quite far back in history to find pandemic yeah. in, in Sweden and train on that sort of data. Yeah. So it's good that you have been around for 200 years. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I wish we had saved that data from 200 years ago. <laughs> yeah. And... Um, do you monitor these potential shifts in data uh, that you mentioned? Is that done automatically or do you do it manually? Um, in the most recent models that I put in production, there are mechanisms in place um, in our sort of lifecycle management capabilities to, uh, to monitor certain data drifts and, and, and certain model deviations. Uh, of, a, of, of threshold values, so those some of them are, are still um, those are been becoming automatic. Um, they generate typically a signal that goes back to a second line support, a data scientist who's been who's the technical responsible for that model. Um, but I think we still have quite a lot of work to fully automate that. We haven't come that far in that regard, uh, so it it will still be uh, quite manual effort uh, where we need to looking into you know, do um, tests uh, of, of data frequency and and the validity of the data and the quality of the data. Not sort of on, on a daily basis, perhaps, but but probably have like a checkpoints for certain type of and depending on, of course, the criticality of the models. Also, if it's do we did once a month or something like that. Yeah. And um, we normally talk about kind of uh, explainability of machine learning models, but here we kind of talk about transparency of the data in a sense. Mm. Um, and I think that's a lot of the time is missing from the conversation. Mm. Yeah, I think it's, um, well, it's, it's, I guess it's much cooler to talk about the models and the codes and to talk about what goes into this. But the data part is, of course, the most important part. Uh, and if you don't have an, if you don't have your house in order with regard to data, then you're, then, you know, all of the other exercises become less important, of course. Yeah, so in a sense, you put a lot of effort to understand uh, how a model is making decisions, but you don't fully understand the data that is the entire basis for the decision-making, right? 
And given that you have been at uh, Swedbank kind of since the uh, inception of your function, mm. since, since the start of your function, what would you say have been some of the most challenging and time-consuming tasks along the way? I would categorize them into... Um, I would probably mention three things. One is culture. Changing culture and mindset around using data analytics. That would be one thing, and particularly in, in so to say, within our consumer base, that is our internal customers and business stakeholders interact with us. I think that's been one of the biggest challenge in terms of also educating and learning and explaining what can be done and what can't be done. What are the prerequisites? I think that's been that is a major challenge still. The second thing I would say it is we have a lot of data, but making sure that you have a timely access to that data. Maybe that's because we are typically very data hungry as an organization, that we need to calibrate our own expectations with the reality. I mean, I can be humble in that regard, says, you know, we are typically always asking for too much. Um, but nevertheless, it's, it's again around accessing the data in a timely fashion. And the third one, I would say it's, it's um, having access to uh, the latest technologies, platforms to be able to do your work uh, in the best optimal way possible. And again, we are part of the problem ourselves. And I think this is, goes back to a larger com the data science community as such, is that it's, it's more about that by, by, by definition almost, I would say. It's, you, know, you always wanted to have the latest, the latest you know, new open source tool. You want to have this latest GPU capability or whatever that might be, because that's kind of expected in a sense. Uh, whether, or whether you should kind of ask yourself, what can I do with what I have here and now? And, and instead of focus on making it efficient, I think those have been sort of common challenges and, and uh, across our journey. And um, related to this, since you've uh, actually started a function like this, uh, what would be your uh, top three advice to someone who is uh, sitting maybe in a big company and uh, thinking like, wow, I want to do kind of the same thing or I want to put someone in place to do kind of the same thing? What would your top three pieces of advice be? In terms of taking on this, this area... I would say probably the first thing would be to really make sure you understand what your business problems are. You know, define them, make sure you understand how, what kind of outcome you want to get out from that. What is sort of a desired end state? Is it, do you want our customers to be more satisfied or do you want more, more sales in this product? Or do I find, find more bad guys? Whatever that, that use case might be. Make sure you have that very clear view. And this is a stark contrast to what we have seen quite a lot, uh, at least in the last couple of years, uh, when companies have in their business plans to use AI. Yeah, I mean, it's always a one-line statement, let's use AI, and then let's throw the AI at this or throw AI at that one. And, and when you actually think about you actually think about it, I honestly think that most of these use cases can be solved using something much more smaller and simpler. Yeah, but uh, yeah. At least at the end of the day, you get AI. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you can check that box. Yeah, so I think that's, that was the first part. The second part, I would say it's um, the point I was making earlier. Make sure you have house in order in terms of data. Data and integration, architecture, those kind of topics. Make sure you're on a one consolidated view. Your data sources, make sure that. And that's, of course, a big saying from my end, because it's not 
you know, you don't do it overnight, but you still need to have some sort of basic hygiene in place when it comes to your data. Uh, it's going to be very problematic to approach this task if you need to go fetch isolated islands here. You might not have an order in terms of, do I have one record of a customer or do I have 10 different records of a customer? Yeah. That thing is probably a good hygiene factor to make sure you have it before you start your AI journey. The third one. Yeah, I think um, start small. Uh, and in the agile way, you know, do your minimum viable product things. This thing of build something small, try it out, test it, learn from it, iterate it. Build something small, improve it, learn from it, improve it, learn from it again and again and again. There's no point of doing big banks uh, and don't get stuck in this POC world because this POC world never tends to actually go into production. Make it very small, approach this MVP, take the most smallest you know, regression model you can apply as a baseline and then try to improve that. You know, add more data to it, uh, do the model a little bit more complex, uh, try to experiment with more uh, measuring different performances of the models and, and of also considering how do I put this end-to-end. -end. Yeah, so um, I think that's a very, very good uh, um, advice. Uh, and just to clarify the difference between an MVP and a POC for you, what's that? I think in a, for us it's been, maybe that's sort of a misconception from our side, but when I mean, we have done POCs, we tend to, you know, almost create like a, a little smaller version of a perfect solution. But when it comes to MVP, MVP is a very stripped down like um, uh, version of a to be solution with much, much smaller functions and features. Uh, it could even in a sense be a mock-up uh, for which you, you just add a phase chair or a capability to it you know, in an iterative fashion. You're not going about to have the entire cap functions or, or algorithms and models into one perfect solution, but you take very, very small things. So the POC oftentimes for you has been more comprehensive, but the MVP is like... Stripped down, very small, yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know why it's become like that, but more maybe because in the beginning we were very ambitious, still are very ambitious, but a little bit more smarter. And we went out and wanted to create, you know, we were never satisfied with the perfect, if the POC wasn't perfect. And there's no such thing as a perfect POC. Yeah. There are also no such things as a perfect AI solution, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that's why you need to really understand that what is good enough. Yeah. Has it also been the case that uh, the POCs uh, are more in a sandbox environment, but the MVP is kind of, uh, you try to put it into production as soon as possible, and then you try to improve it over time. That is at least the idea, the, like the concept of, for which we are doing new developments on, that you want to you know, create the MVPs in an environment, in a setting where it resembles the sort of end production. Technically, it might be still been a dev, of, you know, dev environment, but it, it's, it's integration-wise or output-wise, you could still seek some components of how it could play out end-to-end, -end, so then you can continue to build on it. And yeah. then if you then technically move that production code code from test to production, that's another thing. Uh, but you, you, I think it's important to, in this MVP fashion, to still have an imagination, a view of what your end goal will be. Not saying you're going to need to build that in the first MVP. Maybe that's maybe something that will come up in your MVP 5 or 6 or 7. Um, but but uh, I always still like to have an end state clear for me, you know. What I built this, what is it going to be? How is it going to be used? I mean, is it going to be a score that is available in some sort of an automatic campaign solution? 
This is going to be showing up in the interface of a customer. This is going to be like a banner or a dashboard. What is it going to be? And then, but then you chop down the work in smaller pieces, and then you have a small feature add-on or a component to it. Yeah. And at least my hypothesis on why a lot of proof of concepts fail, as you say, mm. uh, they never lead to anything in production uh, mm. in the end. I, I think uh, one of the main reasons is that they are in sandbox environments a lot of the times. Uh, and uh, then, I mean, <laughs> you kind of ignore a lot of the complexities of reality. Mm. Cool. And uh, the final question. Wow. Who are two guests that you would like me to invite to this podcast and why? I think one of them will be very difficult to invite uh, for you because he's dead. He's been dead for many years. But I think definitely, I mean, I would love to have Alan Turing yeah. here, right? He is by many considered to be the father of artificial intelligence. Yeah. And I would, it would be interesting to ask him, you know, how he sees, you know, 50 years later after his death now, almost or 60 years later, you know, have we really progressed? And and what is his sort of outlook going forward in terms of will we be there with this AGI? I would like to ask him if he would redesign the uh, Turing test or not. Yeah, that's <laughs> I think that's a good question. Yeah, definitely. So that would be one person, and then the other one I think um, it's more because I've, I've I've enjoy his character. I think he's very eccentric, but I would like to have you know someone like Elon Musk. I think in a sense they are very diametrically different as a person. I mean, having them in the same meeting would be interesting. Um, also, Elon Musk has, as you probably know, a very doomedastic, I don't know if you can say that, but it's a very dark view of how AI could develop, where it's good, you know, if it's not democratized, it could take over the world and, you know, destroy humanity. An apocalyptic view, I should say. Yeah. Um, but I think also he's very progressive in his thinking. You know, I was listening to this thing yesterday about that he wants to put man on the moon by 2050. One million people are inhabiting Mars. Sorry, I'm putting putting people on Mars and inhabiting one million people there. Uh, so, um, so I think it would be just an interesting con- conversation uh, with two very um, contrastful people. Definitely, and uh, I think uh, Elon Musk and his kind of strong views on the dangers of AI is quite interesting, especially given that he's uh, probably leading one of the companies that uh, uses AI the most or will use it the most in terms of the uh, autonomous driving and so on in Tesla cars. Mm-hmm. But I still, I mean, if you think about it, I, I, I still get super impressed when I sit in, in my car. Uh, as I drive a Tesla because it's the whole experience and the way it's been sort of designed from the beginning with regards to how you make that sort of an AI a very natural part of your driving experience. Yeah. I think that's 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 a unique part. You never think about it. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, I get, I just need to share this anecdote because it's funny because, I mean, I got this software update. They have this over-the-air over, over the air update because you're like genius as well, you know. Uh, and you wake up, you come into, you're looking at your car, you get new features. Like it's like Christmas every day. And and then this time, actually, it was an update. It was a while back, though. It, uh, it was an update on the sensors of these um, uh, wipers. Uh, and they actually said that yeah, when we used, uh, we analyzed some one and a half million pictures of raindrops on the window to build a deep learning model, so it could learn how to activate and when to activate the uh, the windshields, uh, the wipers. 
I think that's like brilliant. You never think about it. You know, just you just assume that the wipers goes on. You know, uh, and and every time you kind of override that, you know, which I do, which is travel along, you know, and and you want that to be activated before that system learns. Uh, that's really really cool. I mean, that's I mean, you get goosebumps almost to think about how you make that sort of an AI and almost an end-to-end loop. You know, you capture that picture, you use that picture, you automate it, you put it in a function, which is very natural, you never thought about it, uh, and it comes back. So it's AI in its best form, I would say, right? And it also sounds like uh, Tesla has found a customer who really enjoys all of these small details. <laughs> in yeah, the yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I do. I'm a, I'm a gadget uh, guy. So, I mean, it's, uh, I'm a gadget guy. So, yeah, I definitely enjoy it. <laughs> I'm not sure that everyone would realize that uh, it has learned based on your preference. Yeah, no. And there's a lot of learning things into that. Of course, the, there is a, like a very small disclaimer at the bottom. It says, yeah, do you, like, do you approve that we collect all this data and send it to our servers in in US and I'll... Say you yes. say yes. <laughs> and I say yes because, I mean, it's because I feel that the value I get out of it is much more, it's, it's very high and, and rewarding for me. Yeah, and the joy. <laughs> and of course the joy, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for attending the Talk About AI podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a blast and uh, um, good luck with the continuation of your work. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Talk About AI podcast. If you have any feedback on how the podcast can be improved or suggestions for future speakers, please don't hesitate to reach out. The contact info can be found on talkaboutai.com. The next episode will be released in a couple of weeks. It's difficult to say exactly when due to the COVID-19 situation. Until then, have a nice time and stay safe.